Welcome back to HBO's Band of Brothers podcast. This is Roger Bennett. I say flash, you say thunder. Episode 4, Replacements. This ensemble narrative reinforces the notion of brotherhood at the heart of the series, revolving around the central themes of inclusion and exclusion. The latter experienced by those green replacements, the new men who, yes, had gone through paratrooper training, but at the beginning of this episode, at least, had yet to be tested in the crucible of combat. A naivete and innocence which would soon be shattered. <clears throat> well, hate to break the mood here, boys, but uh, we're moving out again. Easy Company is in high spirits as they're briefed on their next mission. They will play a crucial role in Operation Market Garden, a high-risk British hatch plan in which the men would parachute into the Netherlands, liberate the city of Eindhoven and clear a path for British armoured divisions to batter their way towards Berlin. The good news is, if this works, these tanks will be over the Rhine and into Germany. That could end the war, get us home by Christmas. Despite the initial stunning, beautiful, unopposed daytime jump, and a moment of wonder and delight as Easy Company are welcomed as all-conquering heroes by a thronging Dutch crowd during the joyous liberation of Eindhoven, we once again are exposed to the truth that war is filled with savage mood swings. As Easy enters the town of Newnan, the reconnaissance mission discovers that the Germans situated there are far more equipped and prepared than military intelligence had ever believed. And what ensues is a battle where they fall victim not only to the Germans, but the age-old British obsession with protocol. You got a crowd tank! Hold it, on the left body haystack! I don't see him! Put a couple of shells through that building, you're going to see him real good. I can't. My orders are no unnecessary destruction of property. I'm telling you, he's right there. Well, I believe you, but if I can't see the bugger, I can't bloody well shoot him, can I? They retreat without Star Sergeant Bull Randleman, who's injured in a tank explosion and forced to seek shelter alone in a barn behind enemy lines. That night as Bull endures a harrowing hand-to-hand encounter with a German soldier, the men of EZ form a search company to try and find their brother. There ain't no body, then there ain't nobody fucking dead. Understand me? Ultimately, Replacements is an episode about that fraternal bond and courage, both of Bull, who makes his way back to EZ Company the following morning, and of his fellow paratroopers. It's also about war's neglect of such virtues, as Ambrose writes in the Band of Brothers book, quote, Easy Company was as good as any company in the Allied Expeditionary Forces. It had won spectacular victories in Normandy. Its morale was high. Its equipment situation good when it dropped into the Netherlands. It had a nice mix of veterans and recruits, old hands and fresh men. Its officers were skilled and determined, as well as being brave. Despite this, in the first 10 days in the Netherlands, it took a hell of a licking. I don't like retreating. First time for everything. How are the other divisions faring up north? I think we're going to have to find another way into Germany. My guest today is the man who played Wild Bill Garnier, the fearless kid from South Philadelphia who won a silver star and two purple hearts, among other decorations, during the Second World War, losing a leg at the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium, 1944, and in inimitable style, returning home to live a remarkable life in Philly, as if unimpaired by the injury. His relationships with the other men 
especially Toy and Heffron, were living proof of Stephen Ambrose's words in the Band of Brothers book that comrades are closer than friends, closer than brothers, their trust in and their knowledge of each other is total and will never be repeated with any civilian, not even a wife, lover or child. It is a joy to welcome a gent who, according to the other actors, played that role of glue guy on the set throughout the shoot. It's Mr. Frank John Hughes. Hey, Raj. How are you? Great to be here. Oh, Frank, it is a joy to have you. Let us go right back to the beginning. You're a 33-year-old actor from the Bronx. You'd had a steady stream of street-smart characters in movies like Bad Boys with Will Smith. Tell us, how did you first hear about this Band of Brothers project? I was in California at the time, got a call from my agent that there was an audition coming up. It was based on a book by Stephen Ambrose called Band of Brothers. I had known Stephen Ambrose, but I didn't know the book. I went to Barnes and Noble. I found it on the shelf. I opened it up and I read it in its entirety. Right there in the bookshop. Yeah, that kind of agenda. I've never done that before, <laughs> but I did it that time. I read the whole book standing. And by the time I had gotten to the end of it, I said, something really bad's going to happen if I don't get this part. I was so hooked in. I had no idea who I would be auditioning for because I think at the time we were reading what turned out to be Colin Hanks' role. They were just blindsides that they were giving us. Lieutenant Henry Jones. That's right. And I had done some research on him because how I come about all my work is very research heavy. And I found out he had been a West Point graduate and I tracked down like a West Point ring that I would wear to the audition. I cleaned out all the Bronx out of my voice and I went to the audition with Meg Lieberman. Meg Lieberman, the legendary Band of Brothers casting director. She's cast me in so many things besides Band of Brothers since. But I hadn't met her at that point and she was really quite intimidating. She was sitting in the corner of the room. I uh, didn't say much. Angela Terry, her partner, casting director, was reading with me and we read the sides. It went well. And then Meg spoke and she said, Frank, some of these guys are going to be dead end kids from like the Bronx and Philly. Do you think you could do something like that? And I said, uh, I don't know, Meg, uh, maybe. <laughs> she was on to you. It went great. And that began this multi-month, maybe about four or five times that I came in for these readings. From then on, it was Garnier. Three auditions in, you're reading with Tom Hanks, who, in your reading with the great man, jumped a page in the script. And tell us what you did. Every line was sacred. This is all I had to kind of book this job. And in character as Bill, I said, what the hell are you doing, you moron? What are you doing? You know, and it pulled him out of it. And then he realized he had jumped. And he came back, we finished the scene, and he leaned back in his chair and he said, Frank John Hughes, you made my day. I've got to say, when you tell me, Frank John Hughes, that Tom Hanks said, Frank John Hughes, you just made my day. I am not Frank John Hughes. But just hearing that story thrills me in the here and now and fills me with joy. I can't imagine the joy that you felt in that moment. I just said, God, I hope he's not just saying that to make people feel good. He should know the power that we're all hanging on every word that he's saying, looking for any clue of how well we did. At that point, I made this joke. They had pictures up of all the men on the walls, research material, and I saw Bill. I meant to say this to be funny, but I said, you know, Bill Garnier gave his leg to serve his country, and I'd give both mine to serve this project. And nobody laughed. It just came off like psycho method actor. And I said, I think I just cost myself the job. God damn it. You thought you'd just creep them out completely? Completely. It did not come out funny. I was just so excited. And I left and I was really concerned. And my agents called me. They said they loved you and there'll be another audition. So into the final audition. And after the Tom Hanks praise, you expected it maybe to be you and possibly two other potential Garniers. But then you arrive and it was essentially Garnier Lollapalooza. Describe the scene that met you. That's exactly it, Raj. I thought all the roles would be narrowed down to maybe one or two guys. So I expected there'd be five roles. It wasn't. It was all the roles. All the roles had tons of guys. I mean, it must have been narrowed down, but I walked into this place in Santa Monica and there was hundreds of guys there. I just said, oh man. And are you like, Hanks took me. He had me. That's right. So that was another demoralizing thing. Because once we got there and I looked and I saw all these famous guys, and I mean heavy duty famous people. I said, oh, we're just cannon fodder, man. We're filler. One of the groupings of all those people were all those famous people. And they went in and I said, as your cast. That's the cast of Band of Brothers right there. Luckily, it wasn't. You told me something beautiful. You said, essentially, you decided that you had zero fucks to give and you were just going to bring it. But you did. 
have one special superpower. Someone, and it's a bit mysterious, I'm going to be honest, this part of the story, someone had slipped you, and I love this, the real Garnier's phone number. That's right. And some video footage, so you, you had an inside track of types. I'm not going to say who did that, because I'm an Italian-American from the South Bronx, you never rat on anyone. <laughs> but after one of the auditions, late in the process, I was with someone who said, in this tape on my desk, maybe some footage of Bill Garnier which turned out to be the stuff that was at the beginning of each episode. There was a little bit of that raw footage, just a little bit. They said, and his phone number might be in there, but I can't say that that's in there. And if I went to the bathroom and came back and it was gone, I wouldn't know who took it. It could be anybody. I love plausible deniability. <laughs> that's right. So that person left. I grabbed it. Went home, put it on. And that's when I saw that Bill had a substantial underbite. Now, Raj, one thing about acting is if you get four callbacks, never change what you're doing. That's rule number one of acting. Never yes. change what you're doing because it's gotten you this far. I broke that rule and I just felt like people who knew in the production, they would know what that footage looked like. So I experimented with it. I stuck my jar out. So I go into this thing. Raj, this is a crazy room. Steven Spielberg's, he's just like an independent filmmaker filming the thing. He's like a kid in a candy store. He's got the camera. He's filming. Hanks is there. The head of HBO is there. Tony Toe is there. I went in and did it, and I dropped the underbite on him. You had a little ace in your pocket. You had actually spoken to the real Garnet because you didn't just get the phone number. You had that, I don't know a word for it, let's just say a certain confidence to actually call the man. I got that number. I called him the night before the audition. It rings, it rings. Yowza! He picks up. Is that how he answers the phone? <laughs> yeah. Yowza! I said, Mr. Garnier, that's me. I said, my name is Frank John Hughes. I'm going to audition to play you tomorrow at a final audition. Well, kid, I got to tell you right now, they already got the guy. They got him. It's been cast. Oh, dagger. <laughs> I said, oh, really? It's been cast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I met him and everything. He's a nice guy. He's going to be terrific. I said, oh, okay, but, you know, I got an audition tomorrow, so I'm going to go to it anyway, uh, even if they've cast it. How demoralizing was that? It stopped my brain. I didn't know how to handle that. I just knew, you got an audition tomorrow, go to the audition. So I said to him, well, Mr. Garnier, uh, I'm going to go to the audition anyway, tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, do you have any advice on how to play you at 19? He said, just remember, I was a paid killer. I was a paid killer. Anything else I can help you with? I said, no, sir. I think that's a uh, good direction. I'll keep that in mind. I said, Mr. Garnier, I know you they cast the guy, but if, if for some reason they change their mind and I get it, I'm going to take you to a great steak dinner. I owe you a dinner for this call. All right, kid. Yeah, whatever. It's a shame. You know, you're nice, but they already got the guy. I said, okay. Next day, I went to the audition and that all played out. We got done and I went to Meg Lieberman at the end of it. I said goodbye to her and I said, Meg, I just want to thank you. You've been so beautiful during this whole process. Thank you so much. She grabbed me and she said, Frank, I know who they should cast and I know who they want to cast. I just hope everyone involved has the guts to cast the people they want to cast. And I left and I got in my car and Raj, as you can imagine, everyone in my life was calling to find out how the audition go, how the audition go. And I called my dad. I told him it went well. And another call came in while I was still in the parking lot and it was my agent. He said, you got it. Raj, I got to tell you, I had a drive from Santa Monica back to the valley and I don't remember the drive. When I got to my house and got in the driveway, I got out and like checked the grill for hair and blood. I didn't know if I had run over people because I literally had an out-of-body experience driving home. I'm just imagine young Frank John Hughes, rooftop down, Kenny Loggins, Danger Zone, <laughs> blaring up to 11 on the high drive. Yeah. I mean, this is an incredible story. There's so many levels that are incredible. I mean, you took gut punch after gut punch, thinking there'd be two, three of you at the thing. No, there were 300, not just 300, but there were 300 including massive famous faces, not just massive famous faces, but you'd called the actual Garnier and he had broken your heart. I can hear the sound of your heart breaking as you speak to him saying, kid, the part's already been given somehow. And there's a life lesson in this for every listener. But I need to know, do you know who the guy was? 
that went out for a drink with Garnier and told him that he got the part but didn't end up being Garnier. Who was the imposter Garnier? How did this all happen? <laughs> he wasn't an imposter. I was told by Hanks and Spielberg that I had to come to a hotel in Century City that they were going to read a guy that they really loved for Babe Heffron. And since he was my best friend, they wanted to see us together. Chemistry. Yeah. I said, sure. I get to this hotel. There's a guy standing there. God damn it. It's a friend of mine. It's the great actor, Nick Sandow. Joseph Caputo in Orange is the New Black. Me and him had come up together in the late 80s in New York, and we had done a ton of stuff together. We did the audition. He was absolutely brilliant. He just didn't look like Babe, who was small and redheaded, and Nick is tall and, you know, not redheaded. So that didn't work out. So when I talked to him after the audition, he says, I met Garnier. I said, what? He said, I met him. I said, how did you meet him? He said, I got his phone number. I drove down to South Philly from Brooklyn. I went down there and I met him. I took him out. I took him to dinner and I took him out for drinks. He's the greatest guy in the world. I said, son of a bitch, you're the guy. New York boys all in. What was Garnier like? His biography is incredible. At the time of Pearl Harbor, 1941, he was building tanks at the old Baldwin Locomotive Works in Philadelphia, which was a job considered crucial to the war effort. Garnier could have taken an exemption from military service, but not him. He enlisted August 31st, 1942 and went to war. You took this huge geopolitical global conflict and it boiled down to a South Philadelphia street fight. You killed my brother. You're all going to fucking die for that. The brother who was killed in Casino Italy that the real Garnier found out by reading somebody else's letter right before Normandy. He read that, found out that his own brother had been lost. In Johnny Martin's jacket, yeah. In his own words, he said, I felt like the floor fell out from under me. I went into Normandy with one goal, to leave no German soldier alive. That's right. It was so personal. You took this really huge global conflict and boiled it down to something so personal this revenge tale. And it's why he was called Wild Bill. He did things that other people might not have done because he told me many times, I never thought I'd last a day. I was going to kill as many people as I could before I got killed. He had that kind of reckless abandon at first. It was squishing a bug. It was just squishing a bug. That's what human life was at that time. It's completely understandable. First of all, he's a he's barely a, a man at this point. 19 years of age dealing with deep trauma. And it was so hard to believe Raj, based on the Bill I knew, who was gentle and loving and kind and always had a kind word and funny, but there were times where something would happen, his eyes would go black and you would get a glimpse of him just for a flash and you would say, I wouldn't have wanted to be on the end of his Thompson at 19 years old. It would just be a little flash of that paid killer that was in there that he had come to terms with. A number of actors were blessed to develop friendships with the men that they portrayed in Band of Brothers, the heroes they portrayed. You were blessed that Garnier was still alive, very much still alive, in his late 80s, still in South Philly. He was a huge, huge character. Can you give us a sense of the man? The next day I called Bill. I said, Mr. Garnier, turns out I got it. So I owe you a steak dinner. Oh, really? Okay. And I talked to him about, Bill, I'm going to need you to open up about everything that you experienced in a way that you haven't felt comfortable talking about before with people. But I've been tasked with bringing your legacy to the screen and I need to know everything. I need you to be fearless about that. It's very hard to do. I need you to be fearless again. Incredible words, Frank. Especially because it was the greatest generation. They weren't guys that sat around and talked about it. And you know what, Raj? He was a fearless man. And that began six hours a day, basically seven days a week of him telling me everything. And this bonding experience where he became like my grandfather. He held back nothing. He was fearless. He had such a joy for living. Playing Bill made me a better man. Being in character as him made me a better man. He never complained. He was positive. He was a joy to be around. He was loyal. And that love of life really improved me as a man. He made me a better father, a better actor, everything. He was one of the funniest men I know. In that little period between getting cast and going over there, I was doing all this research. So I got an entrenchment tool. I started digging foxholes in my backyard. To prepare mentally for the Band of Brothers shoe that you wanted to dig with your own hand foxholes, which is what, in your mind, in everyone's mind, it's what soldiers do, right? 
I told him this and he said, kid, what are you doing? I was a staff sergeant. We had people dig my foxholes for me. Stop digging foxholes, which was not only funny, but was valuable. It was valuable to know on a research level. Somehow, major winners found out about this. I went to my mailbox one day. I'd never met him. And I opened this letter and there was this incredible letter that hangs in my office now about Dick Winters hearing that I was digging foxholes in my backyard. He wrote and said, the spirit of doing this is what's going to make Band of Brothers special and I honor you for this. And it was really a beautiful and thoughtful thing for him to do. So to basic training, one of the legendary experiences of Band of Brothers, which you called, and I love this, method on steroids, 40 Hollywoodish actors sent to, quote, boot camp to become accustomed to paratrooper ways, paratrooper culture. We have heard from so many of the other actors that at this boot camp, you, Frank John Hughes, actually thrived. After I was cast, I got Captain Dale Dye's phone number. And if you, Raj, ever want to go to war on film, you want to go with Dale. Dale is the best in the business. He is a genius at recreating war on film, top to bottom. He's a historian. It's just incredible. I got his phone number, so I call him out of the blue. He doesn't know me. And I say, Mr. Dye, I'm Frank John Hughes. I'm going to be playing Bill Garnier. And I just wanted to know, is there anything I can do to train to be ready for boot camp? And he says... I can't do Dale's voice. A lot of guys do a great Dale die. I don't. But he said, well, I'm going to tell you this, Hughes. A commanding officer never gives away his plan. I'll tell you this. I'm going to put you through one nasty fucking sausage grinder. You're going to come out one fine fucking soldier. And he hung up on me. <laughs> what did that, Mike? I'm going to ask you, what did that feel when you hung up the phone there after hearing that? Was it like, oh, that's just Dale die doing Dale die? Or were you like, oh, my God. Or were you like, let me at this. This is what I need in my life. It was all that. But I feel like, oh, you know what? Now he's gunning for me. Now I'm on his radar. That was a dumb move. I shouldn't have called him. You were the one who was giving others information like, lads, here's how you break army boots in. You fling them into the bathtub. And I need to know, where does all your inside military information come from? All my great uncles had been in World War II, so I had grown up hearing those stories. My father was in Vietnam, so I had heard those stories. And then Bill just gave me everything. And there was no detail too small that I wasn't fascinated by. So I was in a very lucky position. I had access to people and to Bill in ways that other men did not. Their vets were dead. So anything I had, I just shared with everyone because everyone was equally as intense about knowing every little thing about the men they played. You even told your own son, from now on, call me Bill Garnier. Everyone in my family, my agents, everyone. I was Bill. If I went to dinner, it was Bill Garnier dropping film off. When you used to drop film off, <laughs> shot so long ago, you would drop film off. It would be for Garnier. It was what I needed. But also the production set this tone that we were going to be in character for the year. And, you know, look, I'm from the Bronx. When you meet someone, I immediately give you a nickname. So your nickname might as well be Burkani or Luz or Bull or Lipton. Call you Lip. Because we never got to know each other's names. It wasn't high on the priority list. We had to be called our character names. And I didn't really care about knowing you outside of character for this year. I wanted to know who you were. And I'll tell you, for about three or four years after it, I still called everyone Perko and Luz and Bull and Lip for Donnie's character. It was just such an honor to be in a group of guys who all were hitting it so hard and knew what they had to do and did it. It changed all of our lives. An actor is such a selfish pursuit in so many ways. You're going after these goals. And what boot camp changed was it made you care about everyone else more than yourself. And that was the spirit of Easy Company. They did it a trillion times more. We got the smallest taste. But you would do that. You would put the other guy first. And that carried all the way through production. And in the last 20 years of our lives, it's why we're brothers now. It's why Mike and I throw reunions every year and why we have them every year. We're family. It changed our lives forever, our lives and our careers. Let's talk about this episode, Replacements, in which we find Easy Company, September 13th, 1944, in Oldbourne, England, relaxing around the dartboard in the pub. Many of our old favourites are there, but we also notice some new faces. Replacements, silent, but desperate to mingle in. There's a great scene where you, Garnier, Hand out a simple piece of advice. You new boys, you pay attention to Sergeant Random. Got that? 
as the smartest man in the company. But tensions flare anyway between the old and the new soldiers. Where'd you get that? It's a Presidential Distinguished Unit citation for, uh, for what the regiment did in Normandy. That's right, for what the regiment did. You weren't there. It's a scene that screams about the singular sense of fraternity that the original men of Easy Company experienced. One that was forged into Kewa from running up and down Karahi and then jumping into Normandy that was almost impenetrable. Even copious amounts of alcohol couldn't bridge the gap. In their defense, during that episode, it wasn't like they didn't want to know these guys. Of course they did. They just didn't want to have their hearts broken when they died because they didn't know what they were doing. They hadn't been tested yet. There was a practical reason to being so tough on them and keeping them at arm's length. The Tekoa men were a different breed. I ran Tekoa with Donnie and Scott Grimes and Mike Cudlitz. HBO, before it came out, put us together and brought us to friggin' Tekoa in August. It was 100 degrees. You got Major Dick Winters and Carwood and everybody in the van in front of us while we run this three miles up, three miles down. My dad was a marathoner. I was a long distance runner. All of us were in great shape. You guys were like, we survived Dale Diet Boot Camp. We can do anything now. That's right. But let me tell you, Currie was a son of a bitch. It's a mountain that you run up for 20 minutes and then you run down for another 30 minutes and then back up. It's constantly up and down. You never feel like you're getting to the top of it. So it was grueling, it was 100 degree heat. And when we got to the top, Raj, Major Winters came up to me and he said, Frank, you've left part of yourself on this mountain and I want you to go home with part of this mountain. And Raj, I swear to you, he took about seven minutes to walk around the rocks. Because the whole thing is just rocks. It's not a smooth path. And he picked up this rock and handed it to me. And it's one of my prized possessions, it's on my desk. It's incredible. It's incredible. Both originals and replacements then jump into the Sonche Forest, northwest of the town of Son. And I'm fascinated, Frank, by the incredible jump landing scenes in Band of Brothers. How do you shoot these scenes? This in particular was an incredibly peaceful jump. It was. And Bill had told me that the jump in was just so enjoyable. It was like a training jump. It was a beautiful day and they met no resistance. And, and you know, Rod, let's be honest, after the Normandy jump... Jesus, anything is going to feel like a walk in the park after that. So when we shot it, most of that, as I remember, it is CGI. And they would put people on cranes and descend you down, like in the winter sequence in Normandy, when we come down with Damien. Damien's on a 100-foot crane. For landings and stuff, there were people on cranes for just the last 20, 25 feet to land. But most of it's CGI. And I have to say, some of the most brilliant CGI in the world was used in Band of Brothers. Because to me, the thing that impresses me the most is all the breath that comes out of our mouth in six and seven is all CGI. We were actually sweating to death when we shot that. Yeah. It was in the summer, we had no shirts on under our clothes and we were shivering, and, but we were actually sweating to death. It was so hot. Operation Market Garden initially seems to go well, almost too well as we find out, but the beautiful Eindhoven liberation seeds, huge, set pieces, city-wide celebration set pieces, shot, I believe, on a replica Eindhoven set built in Hatfield, Southern England. Take us there. What were they like to film? It was beautiful because we had people. We never had people around us, you know? It was always just easy company and German soldiers that we never met and that were segregated from us, men who were playing the German soldiers. We never ate with them. We never saw them. They were kept in a different part. We only saw them on the field of battle. So to just have extras and to have women, this was the most testosteroned film set in history. There were no women. So just to have all these women and different age groups and children and older, it was just a beautiful day on set because it was unlike any other day I had had on set. Where'd you get so many Dutch looking people as extras in England? They were all from England, but they crushed it. And I love Babe Heffern's got his little cameo in there. He's there waving a flag. The real Babe. The real Babe. The subsequent reconnaissance mission to the nearby village of Newnan, which we learn, thanks to Webster, is Van Gogh's hometown, is shot so kinetically. The manoeuvres, the tension, the multi-cameras. It's agonising watching you run house to house. No matter how many times I watch that episode, it turns a knot of anxiety in my stomach. How exhausting 
was it to shoot these scenes? What was your mindset when you were clearing a house? You're doing these big scenes, multiple cameras. They take forever to set up. You don't want to be the reason why we got to go again. Oh, shit. So-and-so, you don't want to be that guy. So there's a certain tension. And then if you're in the right space mentally as an actor, you're creating this reality for yourself. They're doing everything production-wise to make this as real and to fool your senses as possible. We can never, ever, ever remotely come close to what real combat is. Ever. That's impossible. But this was as close as you were going to get to doing it on film. And you would surrender to that and the nerves would be there. You'd be amped with adrenaline. You didn't want to screw up the shot. But I'm telling you, Rods, when they yelled action, you were not acting. You were just soldiering. I still to this day don't know where the lines come from when these combat scenes, when you're seeing people yell. I have no idea because I don't ever remember running lines. Someone posted a picture online once of a couple of us running lines and I never remembered doing it. I don't know when I learned the lines. We never ran lines. They just came out of us. It was the ultimate method school of, <laughs> of acting because everything was so real. It was just so real. So yeah, there was a lot of tension. Clearing the house, something that Bill had told me really stuck with me. He said that once they were clearing houses. You take your positions, you kick open the door, you throw the grenade in, it explodes, you go in and you clear the rest of it. He said one time he had kicked open the door and something made him stop. He didn't want to throw the grenade in. And when he stuck his head in, there was a Dutch family just crouched down. They had thought all the Dutch had left. This family was still hiding there. And he would have killed him. And he said, it made me think of who else did we kill accidentally? You know, it's such a messy business. I had that in my mind a lot when we were clearing houses. We know what happens next. Easy Company uncover a superior force of elite German soldiers and tanks. And they're forced into retreat. The episode then focuses on the fate of Bull Randleman. Can we talk? about Michael Cudlitz for a minute because the amazing thing about Cudlitz is that gent can pull off the cliche of soldier with a cigar hanging out the corner of his mouth but make it look natural and human <laughs> because he plays the part with both a swagger and a vulnerability. I'm going to say something. Joe. Jenna Winters. What is it? Mission is paid, sir. Mission granted. Sir, we got nine companies, sir. Yeah, we do. Well, I come we're the only company marching every Friday night, 12 miles full pack in the pitch dark. Why do you think, Private Randleman? Lieutenant Sobel hates us, sir. Lieutenant Sobel does not hate easy company, Private Randleman. Just hate you. Thank you, sir. Mike was just brilliant. Mike did Denver and Vera, his wife. He did the Randleman family a great justice. He was very close with the Randleman family. He had a beautiful relationship with them. Mike's just brilliant. And that's his episode. And you're right. Mike can put a cigar in his mouth and make it seem like a limb. It doesn't seem like it's a prop in any way. You just can't imagine... That character without it, it's so second nature. It's not a prop at all. It's just an expression of that character. This is the other thing, Raj. A lot of the men chosen for the paratroops at that time were smaller in size. The smaller size actually helped you. 5'9", some of the men were 5'2". And plus it was a different age where the average height was about 5'8". So a lot of us were the same size, but Denver was bigger than the other men. He was bigger. So we had this incredible dynamic with Mike that just felt so real and true to life. And his work is just so brilliant. The fight scene with him and the German, so tense. And Mike crushed it throughout. Bull Randleman's separation is agonizing, but it's also another moment ultimately in which the depth of the brotherhood that lives and breathes at the heart of the series reveals itself. When Mike shows back up at the end of that, and I come up and greet him with the other men. I don't know whether to slap you, kiss you, or salute you. I told these scallywags you was okay. Well, they didn't listen. Uh, these salty bastards, they wanted to go on a suicide run, they drag your ass back. Is that right? Yeah, I told them don't bother. <laughs> Never did like this company, none. I had talked to Bill, 
And Bill gave me that line, I don't know whether to slap you, kiss you, or salute you. You know, and I asked production, I said, that's what Bill says. And they knew that I was talking to Garnier so much that they were very open that if I had heard something, I could run it by them and they would allow me to use it. And that was one of those beats. That's a scene that is, it is Garnier, it's surface level banter, but that just flows over the deep undercurrents of love that these men felt for each other. The writing was so brilliant on this and it's all in there. And like I said, I just added, I don't know whether to slap you, kiss you, salute you, but it really sums up Bill. There's a sense of humor, there's a heart, and there's a toughness. That was Bill. And a deep, deep love. Deep love. These guys, they were all like married couples. And this bond between Bill and Babe, Babe and Bill were just inseparable. We'll never know what that kind of bonding relationship is like. Around the time you filmed this episode, you, Frank John Hughes, the man who played while Bill Garnier performed, I can only describe it as a special duty. You dressed into your finest uniform, Looking every bit, the 1944 paratrooper with your jump wings and your blouse pants and screaming eagle. And you went to Heathrow Airport to pick up two very special guests. Saluting them at VIP arrivals. Yes, the real wild Bill Garnier and Babe Heffron had returned to England. You were there to pick them up, to visit set. And I need to know, what was that experience like? It was like doing a movie about the Beatles and having Lennon and McCartney show up. That's who they were to us. It was such a powerful moment. I went there for the flight. I was in my pure wool class A uniform waiting and the flight comes and I wait and they're coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And they missed that flight. They weren't on. So, so all right, going to be at Heathrow another six hours. So the second flight comes. I go down there. I go, they got to be on this flight. I'm waiting there. Here comes Bill. He comes around the corner off the plane at full speed on his crutches. He was impossible to keep up with on the crutches. You have to remember, Raj, he had been without his leg longer than he had been with his leg by many decades. So he was so comfortable and he was strong as hell. He had big shoulders. He was a very strong man. I salute and he goes, hi, you kid. And he blows past me. That's how I meet Garnier for the first time. No handshake. And now around the corner comes Babe carrying all the bags. <laughs> Hiya, Frank. I said, hello, Babe. He goes, he needs a cigarette. So we grab the bags and we go out. And when I get out there, Bill is propped up against the wall. Pure Humphrey Bogart. Hat at a jaunty angle. Smoking a Paul Mall. Hello, sweetheart. He's flirting with all the women that are going by. And women just adored him. He was so charming. And I said, this guy's going to be a handful. This guy is going to be hard to keep up with. Tom Hanks wrote in the foreword to Brothers in Battle, Best of Friends, which is Garnier and Heffron's joint written memoir, word of their presence spread like wildfire as if Elvis Presley was on the lot. Everyone wanted to see the men themselves, the troopers whose stories we were telling, two of the band of brothers who jumped into hell on earth in order to save the world. Give us a feeling of what it was like when they were walking around, these real men, seeing your imaginary representation of their world. Tom's right. I mean, everything stopped. I was so cognizant of the fact that many of the guys who I love so much as brothers that were doing this, their vets were dead. So this was the first time they were getting to touch the source. Raj, you have to remember, I have to introduce them to, I only know the character names of these people. So, I'll never forget one of the most powerful moments I had on the whole project was when Babe and Bill came that first day and I was introducing him to Richard Spate, who played Warren Skipmuck. And I said, Babe, this is Muck. Muck, this is Babe. And Babe got this look on his face and he walked up and he put out his hand to Richard Spate and he said, Damn, kid, I was there when you got it. Oh, my God. My hair still stands up. I will never forget that. And it was at that moment I really... These were not character names. These were their best friends whose names we were playing. We were ghosts. It was like they were walking around amongst ghosts. It's why Grace Nixon fell a little in love with Ron Livingston. Why the Garnier family called me Grandpa. We were bringing back these younger versions of themselves and it was super powerful. There's a story about Garnier going up to another actor and just quipping, you've got a short career, you're not going to make it. But Tom <laughs> Hanks wrote that the fact Garnier had lost his leg as he walked around the actors was a living reminder that the war was not glamorous, 
but the men of Easy Company were and still are. That reminder never went away. And it lived in all of them. I was very conscious of that because we were shooting a scene where we were attacking these German half-tracks. We shoot and then they come out and then we shoot the Germans as they're on fire. And it was at that moment that I realized there could be a post-traumatic stress element. I know it was many years later, but that never goes away. I said to Bill, are you guys okay being here for this? And Bill said, oh, absolutely. I'm fine. And then they started the scene. And while it was going, I was right beside Bill and he was so whispering to himself, but you could hear him. He was going, get him, get him, get him, get that one, get that one. Like he was in that mode. Uh, it was very powerful to see. And then from there, we went to Tom's office and Tom showed us some of the footage of the Normandy drop, which was the first time I had seen any footage from Band of Brothers. They sat on a couch. Tom put on some tape for Bill and Babe to watch of us flying over to Normandy. A lot of the stuff in the plane. They were just gripped watching it. I looked at Tom and we both had tears coming down our face. It was so powerful to watch that footage with them and see them so moved by it. And Tom put his hand on my shoulder. He just said, this is why we do it, Frank. This is why we do it for them. These guys, the real Garnet, the real Heffron, they live life to the full. I mean, HBO gave them an open tab and 24-hour limo services when they were on set. And my Lord, they used it and then some, right? They held court every night. You're looking at these guys. This was for all of them. They were in their late 70s. They were in their 80s. They had more testosterone than any of us. These guys were just other level. They drank everyone under the table. They never slept. Like you said, what the hell were these guys like at 19? When we were going to the premiere, HBO flew everybody, the families of the vets, the vets, and all the actors, first to the Waldorf Astoria in New York, because from there we were going to charter a plane to France. We're up with the great Bill Martin, who is Johnny Martin's son, a Vietnam vet, a sniper in Vietnam. He's a great man. Him, me, Bill, and Babe are up. We're leaving for the airport at like 6 the next morning. It's 4.35 in the morning. We have been up drinking all night, all right? We're with two 80-year-old legends. Two 80-year-old legends. And I say to Bill Garnier, I say, all right, you know what? I'm going to go up and try to take a little cat nap, get a half hour in before we have to get to the airport. And he goes, okay, all right. I say, all right, guys, I'll see you in about two hours. As I walk away, I hear Bill stay in a stage whisper that I am meant to hear. I told you he couldn't stay out with us. I said, son of a bitch. I turned around. I said, two more, you know, and we sat there and I went right from there onto the plane. And when they were on set for that visit, every single night they were on set, after we wrapped, all the actors went to their hotel. These are guys from 21 to 30, you know, 33, drank everyone under the table every single night. And it was the same thing. I had an early call the next morning, one night after five nights of drinking with them, I'm leaving. And I said, I got to go. I have to shoot in two hours. And he, Bill says, I fought the fucking Germans on no sleep. <laughs> I said, bartender, another round. I called in production. I said, you got to pick me up at their hotel. And I told Captain Die, I've had 16, seven and sevens. I don't know what I'm going to be. I didn't have lines to do that day. I was just filling out the company. And Captain Die said, this is your job, is to be with them the whole time. And that's how they were. You couldn't outdrink them. You couldn't outlast them. They never slept at the hotel that we had taken over in France. After like a week of being there, like five days in, the staff that was working the bar left and told everyone, serve yourself. I've never seen people drink like this. They couldn't believe it. They just set up shop and these guys just... And of course, Rods, they'd all stop taking all their medication because they couldn't mix medication, <laughs> you know, their blood pressure medication with booze. So the guys would stop. Their families would be terrified. But they were 20-year-olds again, hanging out in bars as soldiers. 20 again. And I got to tell you this. 20. They drank all night. Never once, not once, did I see any of them ever drunk. They handled their booze. They were gentlemen. They were fun. Never sloppy. I don't know where they put it. They were just class acts, all of them. Bill Garnier died in March 2014, age 90. The two of you had lived a lot of life together. I mean, you went to Vegas with him. 
you told me that he never lost, that he was the luckiest man you ever encountered. He had family who had business in Vegas and they would go out there and he would go with them and he'd call me, hey kid, I'm in Vegas, get out here. And I would go and they'd put me up in a hotel. I'm not a gambler, but I would go with him. Raj, I swear to you, every machine he sat at, he'd pull the handle, he'd win. He'd have a wad of money and he'd go, I'm lucky kid. I just got good luck. You know, everywhere he went, he won. He said to you, I got my lumps out early. Yeah, he goes, everybody's going to get lumps in life. I got my lumps out of the way early. His lumps, meaning Operation Market Garden, his lumps passed on. That was how he thought about his life. Yes, and losing his leg and all those dues he paid, he kind of front-loaded the dues in his life. He was just incredible. He was so much fun to be with. I love watching him dance. He would dance with women and throw the crutches around women and just charmed everyone. And he was such a great figure for my son and for my family. And, and I have to say this too, his whole family was so accepting of me, his son Gene. And Gene's a Vietnam veteran served in the 101st. So I felt I had the family behind me. They were so kind to me. It was just the honor of my life to play him and carry his legacy to the screen and to travel the world with him for all the years afterwards. I got so many years with Bill. He was just a dear, dear friend who I um, admired and just a hero of mine. How are you different for knowing him? On my better days, I complain less. He never complained. He didn't bitch. He took care of what needed to be taken care of. He had a great sense of humor. He brought a level of selflessness into my life that hadn't been there. I was selfless as a father and in those kind of roles, but on a grander scale with other people, he brought that level of selflessness, made me aware of this level of selflessness. The ecstasy almost of caring for other people more than yourself. You could see how it could become an addiction in a war setting. He taught me those things. He's a great example of how to age. I'm really going to cash in on all the stuff. I got a great example of what being older, going up to 90 could be like. How much virility and humor and fearlessness you could have in your later years. If I could be that badass in my 60s, I'll be happy, <laughs> let alone in my 70s or 80s uh, if I make it that long. So that was a role model. That was a role model to have. I'm so blessed to have that role model. Band of Brothers producer Eric Jenderson told us a story that was, that was honestly haunting to hear. He said that the two of you were touring VA hospitals when Band of Brothers came out, which is something you did a lot over and over and over to speak to injured soldiers from the Iraq war. And at one of the hospitals, you, Frank, met a double amputee. He had one arm and two legs missing. And he said, wow, Bill, you made me join the military. That was a powerful, life-altering moment for me because I had never realized that it would... I didn't want to play any part in having anyone go to combat and lose their limbs. I mean, we were telling the story of Easy Company. It never even dawned on me at that age that we would be going to war and that, you know, the 101st would play it all the time. They play it at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the home of the 101st, and that other guys would look to it as inspiration. It was daunting to have that weight and responsibility, never thought that we could have those repercussions. Two things I think with the band experience get forgotten. One is we're intricately tied to 9-11. We had premiered on the 9th of September and then the 11th happened. So we're intricately wound with that. The other thing is that the whole 20 years that happened after that all kicked off in a way that we had no sense of that when we were shooting. We had no idea what was coming as far as 9-11 and that we would be a source of strength. I still meet firefighters today because I have another project that deals with firefighters and that was such a source of strength for them. We just never thought it could have those kind of repercussions out in the world or be used to have people join the military or it's a complicated thing. Band of Brothers, it's become a cultural phenomenon. It is so much bigger now than it was even when it first came out. How do you understand that? I'm always amazed by the fan base and the people. And I have to tell you that the Band of Brother fan base is so respectful. I've never had anyone come up in any obnoxious way. It's done with such dignity and respect. Raj, it's not like other gigs. It's not like an actor gig. They don't see me. They see Bill. And they're being respectful to Bill. We've channeled these people. That's how it should be. I'm not surprised by it because we always need these kind of stories of ordinary men and extraordinary people in extraordinary situations. That's never going to run out. We're going through it now with the pandemic. And I will tell you this, Bill said to me once, 
I had always told him, Bill, they don't make men like you anymore. Your generation, especially you were forged by the depression. They don't make men like you. And he says, no, they still do. If anything happened today, young men, women, they do the same thing today. I said, Bill, I think you're wrong. I think you're out of touch. 9-11 happened. My phone rang while we were watching it. And he said, see kid, I told you they would. Only now they're wearing cop and fireman and EMT uniforms. Doing the same thing we did. Running into a burning building to save people. Told you. And it was profound because he had an understanding of human nature that I did not. And when the shit hits the fan, people help people, you know, and that's how they had to help this time. It wasn't with jumping out of planes. It was jumping out of fire trucks and cop cars and ambulances and going into an uncertain future. Oh, Frank John Hughes, thank you for honoring the memory of the great Wild Bill Garnier. And thank you for sharing your journey with us. Raj, thanks so much for having me. It's always an honor to talk about this project and the Men of Easy Company and all my brothers who were so brilliant in it. Frank John Hughes, I mean this sincerely. You just made my day. Next up, episode five, Crossroads, which contains one of the most iconic lines of this entire series. We're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. And we will have the story behind those words from supervising producer and lead writer, the man who penned Crossroads, Eric Jendrison. And I will never forget the moment when Winters told me about that. He said, I just remember they were cutting the roads and we were going to be surrounded any minute. He just kept laughing. I said, what's so funny? He said, well, we're supposed to be surrounded. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did you just say? (laughs) So make sure to subscribe to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share. And a reminder, as if you needed one, that you can watch Replacements and all of Band of Brothers on HBO Max right now. Until next time. Hooray! Hooray! Hooray!